It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Chris Ford, managing partner and CEO for the Canadian region at Capco. Chris has been focused on strategy and implementation of technology transformation services in the Canadian market for almost 20 years. He is a senior professional with experience leading architecture, business delivery, development functional and non-functional, and infrastructure work streams. Chris's engagement experience spans customer-facing online channels, business process management or BPM, content management, payments, and paper-based item processing for financial services. He is a software engineer by training and is a published author on performance and availability for enterprise financial services platforms. He also speaks regularly on technology and innovation in financial services. Chris Ford, welcome into the corner office. Hi, Brent. It's great to be here. Oh, wonderful to have you here. We spoke a week or so ago and got a little bit of an overview of your business and how things are going there. And, you know, we normally start kind of with the early days of what's going on, but gosh, with so much going on with the pandemic and all that, and oh, it just seems like a forever time, doesn't it? Um, how, how are things going for you personally and and your business during these interesting times? Yeah, like we, I, I've, I've always tried to, in everything I've done, try to have an optimistic outlook. And that's mm. certainly been tested uh, over the last year. Um, <laughs> no question. And uh, when you think about the kind of business that we're in, which is professional services or management consulting for, for banking, um, when the pandemic first uh, appeared, we were very worried because consulting mm. tends to be the type of discretionary spend that right, large organizations right. can, when they're getting serious about cost management, just uh, just decide to to curtail. But I'm, as as is recruiting, and, and I will know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have yeah, similar sympathies. Um, but uh, but I have to say that financial services has been incredibly resilient. Uh, Based, uh, you know, top line revenues as well as expense management, they've been having fairly strong results. And if you discount, you know, the provisions they're taking for credit losses, which look like they might not be as bad as expected, uh, mm. the industry's strong. So as a result, we we've been able to hang in there. We're, we didn't have Fantastic. a growth year, but we hung in there and yeah. protected our yeah. workforce. And we're going to come out of this a lot stronger. That's awesome. That's great. And and you and your family have been well. No no uh, 
illnesses uh, among you and your team as well? Yeah, 100%. We we had three people uh, who experienced COVID very early, but, um, you know, in our, our Toronto headquarters, um, we have about 600 people. And uh, wow. since the pandemic began, there's only three people within our immediate workforce that have been affected. So we've been wow, extremely... Extremely yeah. lucky. And then, of course, my family has been safe and well also. But thank you for that's asking. Great. Wow, that's awesome. Well, listen, I know you, you've been just a little over 15 years at Capco and have had a very interesting journey there. We'll get to that in a minute. But but let's start with your early years. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a suburb of uh, a suburb of Toronto. Uh, mm-hmm. place called Oakville, Ontario. Ah, of- I know Oakville well, believe it yeah. or not. My, oh, really? uh, my son did an internship. Yeah, he was with uh, with uh, Ford. And of course, Oakville has ah. got a, a big Ford plant up there. So yeah, uh, they, during his first few years, he spent six months there and dated a darling uh, Canadian girl out of Oakville for many years. And uh, yeah, have had a chance to visit that part of the world. Yeah, no, it's terrific. No, it's a great place. And uh, uh, I grew up right at the bottom of uh, Ford Drive. Ah, um, right. So having cool. the last name Ford, I certainly do get asked about that. But yeah, we in Oakville, <laughs> we we produced uh, trucks out of the truck That's plant right. and a lot of hockey players too. A lot of people I went to school with went on to be quite successful hockey players. So so I grew up in uh, I grew up in Oakville and um, went on to do a systems design engineering degree at the University mm. of Waterloo, which is a yeah. big big feeder skill a big feeder school into places like Microsoft and into uh, Silicon Valley. So when I finished- Big family, brothers and sisters, um, you know, how how many siblings did you have growing up? No, just one, just one uh, younger brother uh, brother. who's who's now a millwright. Okay. And yeah, but he's, so he's all over Canada doing like heavy industrial work and- and mom and dad were they professionals as well, or did they uh, come out of the working class? What was my, your, you know, I'd say they were both working class in their origins. Yeah. Uh, my mother's family immigrated here after World War II. My uh, yeah. my great aunt married a, a soldier returning from D Day in Wales and brought the whole family here. Wow! And wow. then my awesome. father grew up in a rural town in eastern Ontario, but he he was a chemical engineer, and my mother was went on to be a school teacher. Yeah. Cool. And what about you in school? What did, were you a good student? Do you kind of pass it by or focus in on those things that you like? What, what, what were those years like? Yeah, I probably, I probably was a good student. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, well, I took it fairly seriously at the time, and I, I kind of studied sure. equally in all subjects, and I knew it was an important part of my future. So, yeah, I was a pretty good student. How'd you have fun? Anything uh, playing sports? I mean, hockey, of course, would have been one of them, I'm sure. But other interests outside of that? Uh, I love to play basketball, which is mm-hmm. uh, which is. Uh, I tried not to be discouraged by the fact that I'm only five nine, but uh, I made the most of it, and right. Uh, right, cool. just enjoyed you know spending time with friends and um, reading. You know, music was a big thing for me in high school, and. Uh, and sure. uh, I work. I worked a lot too. I I always when yeah. I wasn't in school, I was usually at a part time job. But I always had fun on my part time jobs as well. Entrepreneurial things you did growing up, you know, in the in the states, we kind of grow up with the ubiquitous paper route. I'm sure there's some of that that goes on, or uh, were you more, you know, uh, doing work that was more retail or other types of things that were focused as you were getting up, getting older. Yeah, no, I had a paper route uh, from yeah. the time I was, I guess, twelve or. Uh, maybe 11 or 12 actually. And, uh, right. my, I guess my entrepreneurial roots, I, um, 
I uh, created with my friend one Halloween a pumpkin recycling business, and we called it ah. Pumpkins Are Us. And uh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we made we made we got like painters coveralls, and we decorated them with orange pumpkins, and we went door to door, and we told people that we would uh, environmentally dispose of their pumpkin for the low <laughs> fee of one dollar. And so, so we did that one Halloween. I think we made about 80 bucks, but we probably spent about three days working. So (laughs) that's good fun. I love it. And, and you went uh, to school uh, locally there. I mean, it was now University of Waterloo. What, what, what made you decide on engineering as a course of study? Uh, engineering, uh, I chose engineering because I really wanted to understand how the world worked. Mm. Right. So, you know, we're surrounded by technology and we're surrounded by, um, infrastructure and, Mm. uh, you know, I contemplated maybe going into business, but it just, it just bothered me that, um, I wouldn't understand how a computer would work or even how a Mm. toaster works. (laughs) So that, that, that curiosity is really what, drove me to engineering and I don't regret it. And you got involved in software engineering fairly early on, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So the the degree I did was systems design, but, um, you know, controlling systems and building systems is, uh, very much enabled by computers. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very early I got into software engineering because I love the creativity and the power of it. And, you know, we see that all around us every day and that trend is only accelerating. And was that in Canada? Did you have some work experience in the U.S. early on? Yeah, no. So I did. Uh, I did my engineering degree just northwest of Toronto at Waterloo. Right. Um, but as part of the uh, internship program um, or the co-op program that they have at Waterloo, um, my first job was in uh, my first real job. I'll say was in Northern California, working for a software company called Roguewave. Yeah. Um, cool. so I spent, uh, a little under a year with them and, uh, had sort of a California experience, which was terrific. Yeah. You got in consulting fairly early on, obviously, even before you joined Capco, tell us a little bit about kind of that path and what was it that led you to kind of go from, you know, software engineer development. I think you spent some time as a senior software architect as well in your background, uh, into the consulting world. Yeah, sure. So, so I, I graduated from university in 1999, which was uh, a really special time in history yeah. because the dot-com boom was uh, uh, about to crescendo. Yeah, yeah I was going to say it was, it was still booming at that time, but not for much longer. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I remember in my third year of university, I couldn't wait to graduate because I could see how much opportunity was being created by the internet. And when I was working in California, I told my coworkers, I said, I think what I really want to do is I want to work in services and I want to help businesses uh, reinvent themselves using Mm. the internet. And the guys I worked with were pretty techie engineers and they didn't really understand that. Right. They were like, well, why don't you just work on, you know, software directly in support of the internet like we do. And I said, no, no, I think I want to do something different. So I came back to Canada and Deloitte Consulting was just starting their e-commerce practice. And I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. So I joined them and got on a plane to New York and didn't really come back for three years and did consulting work in the Northeast in New York. And it was all building websites during the dot-com. And it was a fascinating experience. Yeah. 
Awesome. Now, uh, do, do you have dual citizenship or, or were you, you got a work permit during that period no, of time? Yeah. How did you kind of? Well, this was, this was post NAFTA. So right. uh, TN visas had just been made available. So it was, if you were a skilled worker, very it was very easy. easy. Yeah. You needed 50 bucks yeah. and a letter at the border. Uh, it's yeah. changed a lot since then, but at the right. time it was literally my diploma, 50 bucks and a letter and they just yeah. wave you through. That's great. Awesome. And uh, it, w- when you um, obviously in those first two or three jobs in, in getting to uh, Deloitte, were you involved in um, managing people at all? Did that come a little bit later in your career? When, when did you kind of, you know, move into that level of, of responsibilities? Yeah, I, I can't say I had direct people management responsibility. I had uh, I had increasing increasing roles of, uh, I guess, seniority, but I was supervising technology, right? So I was managing a development team or I was managing the design or I was managing the target architecture. So, um, I was, I was managing, but it wasn't people so much that I was managing. And then, but you know, much later in my career, not until in my thirties, did I really start to have to have some people management responsibility. And that was a big transition. And I'm, you know, sometimes I wonder, I'm still learning. (laughs) <laughs> what job was that at then? When did you begin managing people? Um, that would be, uh, I was a freelance consultant for a while, mm-hmm. and then I joined Capco as a consultant to them. Right. And it was really as part of my first three years with with Capco, first as a consultant and then as a, a, a full-time employee that I uh, yeah. that I was given those responsibilities. Was that a difficult transition, Chris? Did you kind of find going from, you know, being that independent consultant where you were working probably almost exclusively with clients, right? You probably had a consulting manager that gave you a fairly loose rein um, to, you know, actually managing the development of others. Tell us a little bit about that transition. Yeah, it's very difficult, to be honest with you. Um, uh, and because, uh, you know, as an engineer, you, uh, you're you sort of trained to only make assessments or decisions when you've got you know, nearly perfect or nearly complete information. Um, and you're also trained to make decisions or determinations based on um, logic, reason, and data. And so when you try to translate those two things into the world of managing people or interacting with people, um, they really don't apply. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, don't apply true. in the same way. So um, a lot of, uh, you know, just learning through experience, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I look back and sort of cringe at some of my behaviors uh, when I first had to manage people. But, you know, now when I see those behaviors and people who, you know, work in our organization, I'm able to, from a place of authenticity, right, uh, right. give them some advice and coaching. So you talked about, you know, obviously some of the challenges that you had in those early years. And, you know, of course, a lot of the times we take a look around others, right? And sur- certainly kind of adapt some of their styles or, or those that have managed us. You know, if you think about some of the some of the things that you experienced when you first were working for others, were there some behaviors that you identify that you said, gosh, that was really good. You know, I want to use those type of behaviors and I work with others. And then conversely, were there all, also behaviors that you saw that said, mm, boy, wow, when I have a team, I'm going to be working myself a little bit differently. Share us a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's maybe a couple of uh couple of elements to your question that I'd like to address. Yeah. So, you know, the first is that, um, 
in the first 10 years that I worked, um, I, I, I was very conscientious and, you know, I never said no to work. And as a result, I was probably, um, somewhat exploited <laughs> and, uh, which was okay. I've always enjoyed work and liked working, but, um, I, I, I look at the organization that I have responsibility for now and I don't want people to have to work, uh, as hard as perhaps I did, um, without sort of the acknowledgement or the, you know, the, the sort of the partnerial relationship that I think employees and employers should have in a healthy configuration. So without be going into the specifics, I, you know, there's a lot of things I experienced in a more traditional hierarchical workforce that I try to eliminate in, in the business that I'm responsible for now. Mm. And I, I, I think I've been pretty successful with that. Um, there's always room for improvement, but that would be, that would be the first thing. Um, yeah. And then in terms of, you know, emulating behaviors that, that are effective. Um, but uh, yes, that makes sense. Um, but I find that, you know, as a leader, as a manager, we all have to find our own way. Um, right. and an important part of leadership or management is, is, is like real empathy and sincerity, mm. which means mm. that you have to be the manager, or the leader that, that you are right. Not that someone else is. So, you know, one of my mentors, for example, incredibly talented individual, um, and has done great things and continues to do them, you know, we're very different. So I realized Mm -hmm. I, you know, I need to, I need to manage in a way that I can pick up certain things from you, but I, I can't, I'm not, I can't just parrot everything you do because it's, that's just not me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes good sense. Now, when you joined Capco, you joined as a consultant, right? And were you a partner right away? Or can, can, tell us a little bit about the early career path that led you to actually taking over uh, uh, the, the the CEO for, for Capco in Canada. Yeah, that part of the story is maybe a little hard to believe sometimes. I'm not sure. You know, sometimes I tell my people, I go, listen, I'm just a Java developer. I don't know how I got this job. Um, and a technologist because I oversee the business, which is equal parts business and management consulting as well as technology. And um, so the individual that I was referring to a moment ago was at Capco. Yeah. And he, um, I guess, saw potential in me. And he said, listen, I think, you know, you're on a very technical track, but if you want to, you know, really impact the world, um, I'm willing to make an investment in you to groom Mm. you for, you know, more than that. Now, was he someone inside the Canadian operation or was he yes. another part so of the Yes, so he was, in fact, the the managing partner and CEO for the Canadian business. He went on yeah. to run the North yeah. American business as well, but at the time he was running the Canadian business. So he had mm-hmm. he had the role that I have now. And um, and uh, I, I believed him and uh, he was true to his word and he invested in me, mm. uh, groomed me, took me into situations where I really wasn't ready and had no business being in. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I like to think that his investment paid off. It certainly paid off for me. Um, mm-hmm. And we continue to have a great, you know, mentorship relationship to this day. Is he still involved in the firm? Interestingly, he's he's moved on. He is uh-huh. the COO for uh, S&P 500 company. Okay. Um, you know, manages, you know, 30, 40,000 people. Um, uh-huh. And uh, he's actually a client. So now, oh, right. interestingly, he buys our, he's left Capco, <laughs> but he buys our consulting services. So that's great. Things change. Stay loyal but, in that regard. Yeah. So, so tell us about that journey. So, so he kind of took you under your wing. Had you been at the, uh, at the firm for a while uh, before that happened? I mean, he, he was running it then, I assume. Right. So, yeah, he, he had known me actually prior to, 
either of us joining Capco. Oh, um, okay. So, but it was really, I think, and there were three years where I was operating as an individual contributor before he uh, he said, "Listen, Chris, I think." Uh, you know, for your good and for ours, because every organization yeah. needs to sort of groom its next generation of leaders. Um, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he had he had that confidence in me. That's great. So how did that develop? Did you have uh, first regional responsibilities and then, you know, did you go to the States for a while? I mean, t- tell us a little bit about the steps along the way. To- well, in our business, uh, the first step is um, at the time I was what we call a managing principal or what mm-hmm. you would call a senior manager at other firms like Deloitte or KPMG or EY. And um, so the first step was for me to actually be promoted to what we call a social partner, which is the first rung in the actual partnership. So um, uh, in order to do that, I had to demonstrate that I could build and sustain relationships and, you know, develop develop commercial relationships. So this is internally and externally, I presume, right? Absolutely. absolutely. So I had to become a salesperson. So so if you think managing people is uh, uncomfortable for a technologist. (laughs) <laughs> a Java developer. Yeah, a Java developer, no less. Becoming a salesperson is, uh, wow. you know, very daunting. And I, to this day, don't yeah. think of myself as a salesperson. But ultimately, that is uh, what we're what we need to accomplish yeah. to sustain the business. Yeah. So, anyway, so similarly, I I picked up, uh, I guess, that experience on the job and was successful in making associate partner. Um, I was asked to lead our technology practice subsequent to that. I was then promoted to full or senior partner. And then after a couple of years, uh, the individual running North America asked me if I would be willing to take over the Canadian business. And I did. And your mentor had moved on by that time or was he responding? Yeah. Okay. He'd he'd, he'd left the firm at that point and uh, and taken other roles. But like I said, we've always stayed close. Your track was set, (laughs) so to speak. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, tell us, you know, again, kind of looking back at that journey and, you know, as you said, you came in, you know, as an independent consultant to start and then take, took on those responsibilities. Well, what are some of the fears that you had as you got into those roles, particularly with regards to having to sell, you know, let alone manage people day to day? What were some of the things that, you know, were kind of daunting at first and that maybe, you know, tell us a little bit of how you overcame them? Yeah, I think, you know, confidence is so important. Um, and just, mm. you know, thinking about my clients, uh, uh, you know, people who are at the C-level or at the EVP level in, in large banks and financial institutions, um, you know, there, there are a lot of individuals who are sustained by ego um, and they have almost a limited amount of self-confidence as a result. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's extremely helpful when you're at a leadership level. But uh, I'll yeah. say that it doesn't necessarily come uh, easily to an engineer. So um, yeah. you build confidence over time. Um, but I think the looking back on it, uh, even though that means I probably got off to a slow start, um, because I, I've taken the time to build a really strong foundation or footing, mm. um, you know, I feel I've got, I've, I've got strong core beliefs and I think I've got very good self-awareness in terms of what I'm capable of and why I should be confident in those things. So, you know, I look back on that and think about the, the gradual process of bringing, building confidence in a wider repertoire of things. Mm. And that's, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're part of a global organization. Uh, Capco is in how many countries uh, globally? 
How many countries? That's a good question. I, it, would, it would be it would be twenty plus. We're in, we're in all the major yeah. financial centers in the world. Um, right. The only place where we don't have a presence at the moment is Australia, but pretty much anywhere uh, where they have you know a bank and can rub two sticks together, we've got a business. And and the Canada business one of the largest, correct? That's right. So yeah, can, Canada, did it start originally in Canada or was it in another country? Uh, no, the, the, so first of all, Canada is the, one of the three largest businesses. So the U S right. the UK and Canada, UK, right. yeah, That's really, right. really, uh, drive the, 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 the most volume in our global business. Um, but Capco was actually founded by, uh, an individual named Rob Havert, uh, in the late 1990s, back hmm. when I was graduating and he had a vision for, um, a consulting firm that would focus only on financial services. Right. And uh, it was founded in Belgium, and but offices in Toronto and New York were opened up almost simultaneously. Hmm. And the Canadian business has always been a very strong business ever since. When, yeah. I, when, when I joined, though, I will tell you, there was only 30 of us in the Toronto office. And now, as I said, wow. we're over 600. So it's, it's, been, it's been a ride. That's incredible. And, and how many uh, Capco employees worldwide? Uh, it varies by on the day, mm -hmm. but I think between 5,500 and 6,000. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, great ride. Tell us a little bit about the culture of the company and, and, you know, what maybe how that might be differentiated a little bit in Canada than some of the other operations. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, culture, there's a great, uh, quote, right. Culture, culture beats strategy, like, you know, yeah six days a week, seven days a week. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so if you get, if you get people who respect, who are talented people who respect and admire each other and you give them really high quality work, that's interesting and purposeful, then you, you know, you've got the, uh, the ingredients for a, an incredible organization and culture. Right. So, yeah. um, we, we, so we do those things, uh, in terms of try to supply interesting work and, and maintain sort of a high quality in our talent pool because we are a people business. Um, but we also try to have a lot of fun at work. Um, mm. I was, uh, who was the guy? Uh, he passed away recently, but he built the store that was selling, what was it, shoes online? Oh, um, yes. Zappo. Um, uh, Zappo, yes. Uh, uh, Tony, Tony Say. Yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I was reading about him and, you know, he, he really believed that fun was an important component yes. of work, right? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It breaks down barriers and it, it just gives people an energy. So we try to have a lot of fun. Um, we try to be unconventional, meaning just because something's always been done this way, that doesn't mm. really mean anything, um, especially if it's just always been done that way in an industry and we think we can do it better um, at Capco. And then we're, you know, we're flat and, um, we're flat and non-hierarchical. Like I tell all of my people this, I say, I don't, I like in five years in, in this role, um, or four years, maybe, um, you know, I've never refused, a, a coffee, lunch, mm. you know, drink invitation, or just one-on-one -on -one yeah. meeting with anybody in the company at any level. So, um, so we operate pretty flat and we're pretty, in, like, we take our clients very seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. That's one of the lines mm. I like to use. I love it. That's great. And would you say that's pretty much a global cultural approach as well? Or do you kind of have your own opportunity to spin that a little bit with Kafka Canada? <laughs> well, I think, you know, every region is going to, for any business, I think, is going to have its own local flavor. Sure. Um, you know, in, in Toronto, uh, because my background is technology and engineering, I, um, I think the business is probably lean towards technology, uh, you know, a little faster than maybe some of our other, our other businesses. 
Um, but you know, that's, that's normal. And it's just a function of the, you know, the local leadership and kind of the local, um, you know, the local country, uh, or regional, uh, uh, you know, specifics, but no, I, you know, I, I think generally speaking, you know, our values are, uh, and the characteristics of the business are pretty consistent. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, cool. How would you say your leadership's evolved over time? You, you said you had a pretty steep learning curve. You, you, I think you mentioned you were in your early 30s, right, when you joined Capco yeah. and then yeah. moved in, had that mentor moved you into those positions. You know, looking back at those 10, 15 years now that you've been there, you know, what, what were some of those things that you think, you know, you've you've really changed or perhaps your belief system is, has been challenged a little bit and you've made modifications along the way? Yeah, the, the number one thing I think that jumps to mind is patience, mm. right? Um, when I think all of us, when we're younger, are impatient, um, but, <laughs> can identify uh, with that. <laughs> yeah. But as you get older, you, you definitely, and especially as you have, you know, positions of more responsibility, you, you, you need to know when to be patient yes. and when it's okay to be a little bit impatient. And I, like, I will say three kids and a, um, a wife with a short temper have definitely taught me uh, <laughs> in my personal life to become more patient, but, you know, certainly at work and with clients and with colleagues as well, uh, that it, patience is a learned, a learned behavior, yes. especially yeah. for yeah. a lot of us. So that's, yeah. that's the first Take thing that jumps to mind. How, how do you decide? I mean, and I'm assuming you kind of have a, a typical management structure in place in addition to your consultants. Is it, is it a, is it a pretty, you know, you, you mentioned a flat organization and I meant, I know what you meant by that in terms of your access, but is there, is it very hierarchical as well within, or, you know, you just kind of have your, your key C-suite in place and then pretty much everyone else is working with clients. Is that pretty much the structure? Yeah. Well, historically, like we're, we're a partnership, right? Um, okay. at, at least in name, like we're privately owned and the, some of the partners have uh, you know, uh, ownership units in the, in the company, but, but we're not a pure partnership in the way that, right. you know, some of the accounting firms are, for example, but, yeah. uh, but we really do take the spirit of the word partnership. And, you know, I just, I really do consider myself one of the 15 partners that, that work out of our Toronto office and for the Canadian business. And, um, as much as possible, um, I believe we should make decisions together, mm. um, as a partnership you know, ultimately I have the tie break and sometimes, you know, the right thing to do is for me just to make a decision. But, um, you know, when there's time for consultation and when it makes sense, I, I learn from my colleagues and I think we make better decisions that way. Yeah. Um, so, and because I've worked alongside of these partners, you know, that some of them I used to work for, um, right. that, right. uh, right. you know, we become friends, um, I friends and, and, and coworkers and colleagues. And so we have very good personal and trust relationships between each other. Um, you know, the average partners has a tenure of probably eight years. Right. So you really build, you know, durable relationships in that time. And so I would say, yeah, it's not, it's very much a trust and trust-based environment. It's very yeah. much non-hierarchical. I'm there to coach. You know, I like the term subservient leader, you, mm. which you're probably familiar with and your listeners. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, not a lot of structure, but big focus on trust yeah. and personal relationships and getting the right kind of team chemistry. 
You know, you'd mentioned that some of the partners, uh, obviously that you work for now work for you, right? I mean, technically, right? From a, from a management standpoint, how, how do you make the decision, particularly with those relationships where, you know, you've, you've, you, you're now in a managing role, you know, when to micromanage and when to kind of, you know, let them stay in their own sandbox, so to speak. I mean, are there times where that becomes a little more difficult for you? Yeah. Um, I think maybe at first, but, uh, yeah. you know, now that I've been in role for, you know, the time that I have, I, I, I don't get that sense anymore that, right. that I have to kind right. of earn the trust of some of the individuals. Um, when it comes to, you know, how much rope to give people, um, I generally, uh, I, I generally like, I don't like to cut across my people and tell them, yeah. no, this is what you're going to do because I'm the boss. You err on the side of more rope. More rope. Yes. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I find people have to learn their lessons sometimes. Like we had a couple of guys in our business a few years ago, one of them still with us, the other isn't. And, uh, they had this opportunity with, a a few insurance companies in South Africa and they wanted to fly there desperately to try to close some of these opportunities. And I told them for a number of reasons, I'm like, guys, this is never going to happen. So, um, but they were quite insistent. So I said, all right, well, the first thing is, let's see how serious you are about this. If you're going to go to this meetings, you're flying economy, not business class, um, <laughs> which we would, which we would normally allow. Right. Uh, and I, and I said, I, st- I don't recommend this. I don't think it's a good use of your time, but you make the decision. So, you know, mm. we're going to spend a proportional amount of money on it in terms of the travel expenses. And you guys ultimately make the decision. And then, you know, a year later, one of the guys at least came to me and said, you know, I appreciate the fact that you actually trusted us. Yeah, it was a stupid idea to go to South Africa for these meetings, but, you know, they learned a lesson as a result. And mm, that's, that's a yeah. more, that's a better investment, I think, than yeah, them, res- right. them resen- right. resenting me for the next year because. Yeah. By telling them not to go. Yeah. Oh, good example. Love that. You know, you're obviously growing, you're hiring people in, you know, how do you kind of make the decision on, you know, making that investment in people that you, that you hire? What, what, what do you look for, Chris? Yeah. So I was, I was, was reading a magazine article about Warren Buffett. This is like mm. probably quite a few years ago. And he, he made, now Warren Buffett doesn't hire a lot of people. I think, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is only hundred people or something like that. But anyway, right. he made right. this comment that when he hires people, there's really only three things he's looking for. One is aptitude, which is, you know, intelligence, mm-hmm. problem solving. The second is, um, you know, enthusiasm and work ethic. Like to, are people actually interested in what they're doing? And as a result, right. do they enjoy it? And are they willing to get purpose from it, et cetera. And then the last was, uh, you know, just personal integrity. Right. It's just the kind of person that you can trust. And he said, if you hire people who have those three qualities, um, that really anything is possible. And that's how you build a great organization. And um, Mm. so I've always uh, I've always remembered that. And I've I've told this story many times, but that's what we look for, basically, and people. And we put a lower premium on actual domain experience or knowledge. Like it's obviously Mm -hmm. important Mm -hmm. in some situations, but, you know, six out of seven days a week, give me the person who has those three qualities over somebody who's bringing, you know, other things to the table. You know, I think I've read that same article. And, and if I recall, you know, he was asked kind of a follow-up question as well. How do you really get at the integrity one, right? Because that's the, that's the toughest part of those three. How do you go about that, Chris? What, what kind of questions do you ask? And, you know, how do you kind of get under people's, uh, 
you know, resume and their background with regards to really determining whether or not they have that level of integrity and are going to be a good cultural fit for Capco. So, so I don't do a lot of our, uh, kind of human or behavioral interviews anymore. Um, and you know, it's, it's, there's, there's only a selective, you know, number of people that I myself interview at this stage, but, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like this, uh, I'm tempted to say that I just have this incredible intuition and sense for people <laughs> and that I'm never wrong. Um, but that was, that would be untrue. Right. Um, mm. you know, I, I do think that, you know, making somebody comfortable with you in the interview process, uh, mm. so that they can be as much them true as much their true selves as possible, I think is, is certainly part of it. So I don't, I don't, when I meet somebody, it's about getting to know them and having a conversation. It's not about a stiff, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not trying to put them through a gauntlet of difficult questions necessarily. And, um, I don't know, hopefully you get a feel for the person, um, you know, cross-checking what different people are saying about an individual and what their experience is, is, uh, is an important part of it as well. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you get it wrong, right. And, uh, within the organization, when you do get it wrong, you need to be willing to, to do something about it, to protect the company and to protect the culture and to protect the people who do work there. Do you have a favorite interview question or, or questions that you typically answer or, or rather ask all, 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 all the people you interview or do you kind of roam around a little bit and try to get a feel for the person? Yeah. So I like to, um, I'm glad you asked this question. Um, and I don't know if the example I'm going to give is going to be relatable to the people who might listen to this, but, um, mm. I like to ask questions where you, um, give a person a problem and you ask them to um, just work through verbally or maybe with the aid of a whiteboard or a piece of paper, the approach to how they would solve the problem. And um, and this is not the questions that you get asked uh, traditionally, like, you know, how many trees do you think there are in Manhattan, right, which are these quantitative estimation exercises. The kind of question that I'm talking about is my favorite is um, – how do you think a check, like a paper check, and I don't know, I know we don't write many of those anymore, but how do you think a paper check is actually processed? So if I write you a check and give it to you and you take it to the branch, hmm. talk me through all the things you think need to happen before that paper check gets back to me, yeah. the person who wrote it to you. And um, it's amazing, uh, the the variation in performance. You get some people... Yeah who fully hypothesize without a lot of prompting, you know, the whole concept of indirect clearing, netting, exception management, you know, day two processing versus day one processing. Like they don't get the names right, but they just hypo, they are able to construct it. And then you get some people who just don't even know where to start. And uh, you can really see the difference. It makes a huge difference. And you're looking, you're looking to see how they think. Right. In, in how they set. And I can up. tell yeah. both in, yeah. with a question like that. And sometimes that's the only question I ask in the entire interview. And I can tell mm. both things. I can tell approximately how much aptitude they have. And then the people right. who I absolutely love are the ones who get so into the problem solving, they forget <laughs> they're in an interview. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Then you really see their true personality, don't you? Exactly. And, yeah. uh, but I, I love, love those people, right. The ones who really get yeah. into the problem. Yeah. Those are the, those are the best. 
Great, Chris. Well, we're just about out of time. A couple of questions, though, before I let you go. And, you know, we kind of started with the pandemic and the impact that it's had. And so grateful to hear that, you know, your family's well and you've had so few incidents within the company. Looking forward, you know, in in, in perhaps kind of looking a little bit back and looking forward, has, has Capco gone through a lot of changes that you will see that will really be necessary in terms of how you work in a po- post-COVID world, <laughs> provided we ever get there. Um, you know, have you moved to more of a remote workforce? Have there been other changes that have been made? Or, or you know, what do you see with your customers moving forward that is going to be different uh, in 2021 and beyond? Yeah, so we were we were always resilient to this type of thing only because we are consultants, right? So, you know, a lot right, of our consultants, right. they're home off. They are already based somewhere where we don't have an office, so they work remotely. Um, now, yeah. people aren't flying to client sites, but, you know, we're or pretty to South to, Africa for the matter. Yeah, we're South <laughs> Africa. But we're pretty used to, you know, we change settings pretty frequently. So that that was, I think, an easier thing for us to adjust than maybe for others. Mm. Um, in terms of, you know, the conversations we have with clients now, it's all about, well, do we need big premises anymore? Um, you know, my my own view on that is is yes, like we're, uh, we're a social species. We, in order to have high performing teams, you need to have uh, propinquity, which Some is a togetherness, fancy, right. it's a fancy yeah. word for togetherness and, yeah. and face-to-face. Yeah. So I think that, yeah. that the space that our clients has is going to change. Office space will change. Mm. And then there's other yeah. things that are going to make a change too, like 5G. You know, there's no need for pr- proprietary office networks. And then your yeah. phone very quickly is going to be just as powerful as you know your laptop computer so you won't need uh, you won't need physical hardware at your desk and you won't need a a office network to plug into so you know those things combined with different usage patterns i think yeah i think the offices are going to change a lot but you know the monotony of cubicle farms is something I'd like to leave in the distant past, right? So <laughs> you and me both. I think it's good. You and me both, having having grown up in some of them myself. <laughs> oh goodness. Well that's great, Chris. Well lastly, um, you know, we always ask all our guests this, what you know, what career and life advice would you give someone that perhaps has their eyes in a corner office and, and maybe like you has joined an organization in a independent contributor role or as a consultant maybe kind of has a vague idea about where they want to go with their career, but, you know, whether they'll assume the corner office or not is, is kind of up in the air. You know, what, what would you tell those folks? What's, what's worked, what's worked for you and what would you pass along to others in terms of them planning their own career? Yeah. And, and I get this question a lot. So, and, and the, so the answer has gotten better over time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at least I think it has. And, and the three things that I tell people are, um, number one, you know, pick a momentum area uh, in the mm. economy. So when I graduated, I picked the dot com and IT and computing because I could see the explosive growth good that was happening. So <laughs> good choice. Yeah. yeah. So right now, cloud, yeah. public cloud technology is just exploding. Yeah. So that would be an example of something to hitch your wagon to now. Um, mm. Number two, uh, and this is, this is, People often give this advice, you know, don't pick companies, don't pick roles, pick Mm. bosses and leaders, right? Pick a manager who is talented and on their way up so that you can follow him or her. They're going to create opportunities for you. They're always going to give you the Mm -hmm. credit because they don't need it. So picking Mm -hmm. a manager that really has potential and understands you is more important than working for, you know, a premium company in a 
premium or in a sexy industry. Mm. And then the last thing I say to people is, um, you know, be curious, you know, be the person who asks the most questions Mm. and, um, you know, make the most from all of your experiences in terms of what you can learn from them. So, so those are the three things I don't want it to sound too canned, but, um, they've worked for me. And I'm, uh, yeah, you know, you're, you get a, as you get older, you want to start to give people advice, even when they don't ask for it. So, <laughs> well, that's definitely sage counsel, Chris, yeah. Chris Ford, CEO of Capco Canada. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks, Brent. It's been fun. Take care. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 